Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. We're sitting here with Mike Payton, former visionary and CEO of EOS Worldwide, and now a full-time implementer and facilitator of the EOS system. So I'm looking forward to our conversation, Mike. Yeah, me too, Corey. Thanks for having me. So I want to start this off. I had a friend over the other day. She comes in from Victoria. We're living in Vernon, BC, and we sit down. Her and my wife and I are having a glass of wine. She looks on a coffee table and she goes, that's traction. That's EOS. She's like, that's amazing. She's like, that changed our company. And she is a remarkable saleswoman, like just crushes it. Major seven-figure accounts is the kind of thing she goes after and could not say enough about EOS. So I want to bring that into our conversation because I think it's like, it seems like such a crucial part in building businesses and what you guys are doing. But before that, how about an introduction about yourself and let's get to know who Mike Payton is. Yeah, sure. So first and most importantly, father and husband love spending time with my family, which is a rare commodity for a lot of very busy entrepreneurs, which is why I work so hard to prioritize it. I grew up in an entrepreneurial household, cut my teeth in banking out of school, learned my way around an income statement and balance sheet, learned the difference between success and failure in business is often a razor thin margin and a little bit of luck, always involves hard work either way. And then always looked at banking as an opportunity for me to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And so after about 10, 11 years in banking, I took my first entrepreneurial leap, joined the leadership team for one of my clients. And that was the first of four entrepreneurial experiences running or helping run small, aggressively growing businesses. Two of those were great successes, two dismal train wrecks. And I'm, in hindsight, more grateful for the train wrecks because you learn more and you build more character when you're able to pick through the rubble and analyze your own mistakes. And the fourth of those opportunities was one of those train wrecks. But in moving to Minneapolis from Columbus, Ohio, and taking on the role to run an entrepreneurial company in partnership with its founder... I realized about three days in, I had made a terrible cultural mistake. My leadership style and my approach to managing people didn't match at all with the cultural norms of that organization. And so I was looking for a way to reach the owner and and connect with the rest of the team and make a positive difference in that organization. I discovered EOS, and that was about 15 years ago, 2007 to be exact. Gino Wickman, my friend and mentor and author of the book Traction had just published the first edition of that book and a friend of mine gave it to me and it really spoke to me. And so since then, I've been a EOS implementer. I spent a five-year stint running EOS worldwide as its CEO or visionary, as we like to call it within the EOS ecosystem. And about three years ago, stepped down to return to my role as a full-time EOS implementer because I just really enjoy helping entrepreneurial leadership teams get what they want from their businesses. So towards the end of the conversation, I want to go 
deep into what EOS is and the formula you have for operating businesses. But before that, maybe just a bit of context about how big is EOS? And I was surprised when I found out, but to give some color for our audience. Yeah, well, it, I'm surprised every time I get asked that question because when I started, it was Gino, his business partner, Don Tinney, and I was part of the first boot camp class of young implementers that they were, and I should say formerly young implementers, that they were uh, trying to teach how to do this work we do with our leadership team. And today there are uh, nearly 500 professional EOS implementers around the world and literally around the world. We've called the organization EOS Worldwide from the start, but worldwide back in the day meant Gino and Don in Michigan and one EOS implementer just north of the border in Canada. Kind of like the U.S. World Series. Yes, it's, that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. So you grew into it. That's exactly right. So it's really remarkable. You know, there are about 150,000 companies around the world using the EOS tools in their business. There are over 13,000 companies that have hired a professional implementer to really run their business on EOS and the growth just continues to amaze. Awesome. Now, I'm curious, you took on the lead role, the visionary and the CEO role, and then stepped away from that to go back into being an implementer. Why was that? How was it and why was that change? Yeah. So, you know, the organization was growing very rapidly when I took over in January of 2015. We had about 60 EOS implementers, but the flywheel had started to turn, Corey. And by the time I stepped away in uh, 2020, March of 2020, right before COVID hit, we were at over 300 professional EOS implementers. And so we had grown 5X in five years. And it had become a different company than one I was adept at running. I wasn't the right guy for the job anymore. And it showed. My family noticed that I wasn't having fun anymore. I noticed that I wasn't having fun anymore. And I started to feel like I was the person who was the anchor dragging behind the ship, slowing everything down. And I was a part-time CEO. I was spending about half my time with my clients, still doing EOS sessions, and half my time trying to succeed as the visionary. And I was struggling with that. And I realized that I just preferred the work I was doing with my clients. I think I was better at that than some of my clients might disagree, but <laughs> better at that than running the organization. And so I never wanted to be somebody who was preventing the company from achieving its potential. And that kind of made the difference for me. Quality of life and my ability to be successful were going to be much higher if I went back to my roots. What were some of the conversations you were having with yourself leading up to that decision to step down? Yeah, so I'm lucky in that I didn't have to have a lot of conversations with myself because I don't rely on my own judgment in those moments of crisis and stress. You know, I'm married to a woman who's a brilliant thinker and a kind-hearted person and always willing to listen and, and offer support. And so Kate and I spent a lot of time making lists and talking about the pros and cons of various ways we might go. I spent a lot of time on the phone with Gino. I spent time with my integrator, Kelly Knight, the COO or president would be a a nice corporate title equivalent to that, the number two in the organization. And, you know, Kelly was running the day-to-day. -day, and so I feel like I have a great network of confidants that I could rely on. 
And the kinds of things we were talking about were, where's this company going? Am I really the right person to lead it there? You know, can I be successful part-time? One of the big factors in my decision is I really felt like if I was going to continue as the visionary, I needed to be a full-time visionary, not a part-time visionary. And that meant I was going to need to say to all my clients that I couldn't help them with the OS implementation anymore. And I just couldn't do that. Like, it was impossible for me to do that. I love them. And I feel like the feeling is mutual. And so it made the choice, quite frankly, pretty easy in the end. Hmm, Interesting. And I think one of the tenets of EOS is something along the lines of grow or die. In the sense, you need to continue to keep growing. And I would imagine that, well, I've sensed from a lot of and seen from a lot of CEOs that there's a sense of needing to always be growing. And perhaps it's an ego thing, or perhaps it's a, you know, just a sense of competition. Were you feeling that as well in kind of in that transition? And like, I asked this because I think I might have felt this in your position. Am I not living up to the potential of who I could be? Yeah. So it's really, it's an artful question, Corey, because grow or die is one of EOS Worldwide's five core values and that you can't be really good as a, an EOS implementer and good at helping entrepreneurs if you're not constantly wanting to sharpen the saw. It doesn't really mean grow your organization until it kills you. So the running joke inside the EOS implementer community is it's not a multiple choice question. We don't want you to grow until you die. We want you to be the kind of person that's always trying to get better, to learn, to grow, to push yourself outside your comfort zone, but not to your mental or physical debilitation. And that's where, you know, the book, The EOS Life, which is the most recent entry to the Traction Library, is all about what it is we want for all of our clients, which is to do what you love with people you love, make a huge difference, get compensated appropriately, and have time for other passions. And what had happened to me was I was spending more and more time not doing what I loved, but what the business needed of me. And I didn't have any time for other passions. And so as a result of that, and one of my passions is learning. I mean, I love reading. I love watching brilliant thought leaders present material that is thought provoking and challenges the status quo that's going on up here. And I just didn't have time for that. I didn't have time. I had longtime clients who graduated many years ago call me and say, hey, let's have dinner. And I you know, and get caught up and I couldn't fit that into my calendar. And that's just not the person I want to be. Those are the things I love doing in my life. And when you have to make a choice between what you love and what you're getting paid to do, pick what you love. Yeah, that really speaks to me because I mean, we find ourselves in with our company in a position where, for example, I have a couple of friends who own very successful marketing agencies and we're a boutique marketing agency focusing on public companies. And they're telling me stories about how they doubled their sales and earned less profit in doing so than if they hadn't done that. Double the sales, triple the stress and have their profit. Like, And so it's just really interesting. It's nice to hear this. And it, <laughs> for me, I hope the audience gets something out of this, but it feels good to hear this, that you don't need to be crushing yourself to crush your career kind of thing or to kill on your career. Yeah. And, you know, the key is surrounding yourself with other great people and, you know, ensuring that they're doing what they love and fit your team beautifully and so on and so forth. But 
this for my journey was a particularly easy choice in that I didn't see a way to get have both, both be the leader and visionary I imagine being for this organization that I care deeply about and living a life I love. And only when I didn't think I could do both at the same time did I feel like I had a really difficult uh, decision to make. Most of our clients are able to find a role as a visionary that allows them to spend most of their time doing the kinds of things visionaries are gifted naturally at doing, like big relationships, big ideas, you know, finger on the pulse of the future, that kind of stuff, and get people on their team who can tackle the other stuff that they don't love doing. It just grew beyond my capacity to do both. Amazing. Great. I appreciate you giving us the insights there and sticking with what you love. And I'm curious now, what do you think about most, both in your work life and your personal life? What do you think about most? Yeah. So personal life is just, you know, I'm a restless soul and I've been running on a treadmill that's one tick higher than my little feet can carry me for 40 plus years now. And so I have five boys. My wife and I, blended family, have five boys between us, ages 36 to 12. And, you know, I really want them to learn to be at peace and be comfortable being at peace. Never really resting, but able to be at peace. And that's kind of consumes a lot of my personal thinking right now. I want them to have joy in their day. I want them to work hard at something they care about. And I want them to be in general at peace. How do you do that? How do you balance that? And I ask as I, you know, we've got an eight month old, our first child, you know, he's just like, he's a handful. It's amazing. But I started thinking about that. Like, how do you instill that drive and that passion to go build and be better, but still be at peace with yourself? Because I think it's almost a contradiction. Yeah. And I think you have to play the long game here, Corey, in that, I mean, at eight months old, you are about to embark on a journey where you say the same thing to your child almost every day for somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 30 years and wonder if they have a sense of hearing. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But I believe we give our children the gift of truth and that even if they're not demonstrating that they're hearing you, they hear you. And so for me, you know, number one, I think having kids made me work harder at being the man I want to show up as because somebody you care unconditionally about is watching every move and they are watching every move. And so the first thing you got to do is reckon with peace yourself. And, and I, you know, I mean, I've been through years and years of therapy and done just about everything, a, a sweat lodges, you name it, immersion tanks, I mean, you name it. I've tried to figure out how to find peace myself. And I'm on that quest every day. I'm not at peace as we speak. I've got lots of work to do. But having that reason to be at your best yourself will drive you to demonstrate by your actions, not so much your words, that it is possible. And they do hear you. My son's, uh, my 36-year-old started his own business at the start of COVID when the business he was working on with a old high school buddy of his was hampered by COVID. And he's killing it. And, you know, for many years of his life, he wasn't doing work he loved. He wasn't working alongside people he loved. And you know, he's found his way and may unfind his way because that's the way the world works. But 
you know, I hope when he looks at me, he sees somebody who's worked his tail off and was always sort of busy, but is striving to find peace himself. And that's what it's all about. Why do you think it is that we can't find peace? And is this something, a trait that you see in all your clients and CEOs and leaders that you work with? Yeah. And I think especially in entrepreneurship, I mean, entrepreneurship is often born out of the ability to see opportunities other people don't see and seize on those opportunities. You know, a non-entrepreneurial personality sees an opportunity and then can give you 73 reasons why it doesn't make any sense to pursue it. Okay. And so an entrepreneur sees an opportunity and the more people that tell us it's not going to work and it's a terrible idea, the more motivated we get. So reconciling that personality type with being at peace, is it's not easy. Listen, part of it is just self-care and self-love is, you know, you just have to recognize that that's the way you're hardwired. And how can you do that from a position of calm and confidence and, you know, a willingness to admit mistakes? You know, some of the toughest lessons in life I've learned is, you know, I wanted to be right more than I wanted to be effective. And so I'm hanging on to something that I, I thought two years ago was a good idea and I'm willing to give it up because darn it, if I give it up, I'm wrong, you know? And so those are the kinds of lessons you have to learn to get to the point where you just realize, man, you're going to make a million mistakes in your life. Learn from it and move on. Say sorry to the people whose lives were negatively affected by your mistakes Love yourself through it. Love other people through it. That's how you find it, my humble opinion. Thanks for that. I'm curious about some of your biggest successes and biggest failures and how they came together. Well, we have time for the successes because they're <laughs> not sure we have time for the failures. I like to start with failures. So the decision to come up here to Minneapolis and run this little $7 million company was a terrible decision. And I've run the gauntlet of blaming it on everything other than just poor processing of opportunity by me. And just for clarity, that's not an EOS. This was a previous venture you were involved with. Yeah, this was pre-EOS. I was helping run a small company in Columbus, Ohio, sales and service training company. We had a business partner up here in Minneapolis that we did some co-selling and co-delivery with. And the owner of that company offered me an opportunity to come run her business. And it was an offer that was made publicly enough that I didn't have the luxury of time to think through it. And what I didn't think through at all was culture fit. And I'm smart enough to understand that culture fit is important, but the the juiciness of the opportunity was so compelling that it was one of those deals where you see all the positives and you negate all the negatives in your own brain. And in hindsight, I'm just shaking my head wondering what the heck I was thinking. Great company, great leader. It just was a poor culture fit. What that company needed and what that founding entrepreneur needed and what I brought to the table were two different things. And if I had Known what I know today, I would have been smart enough to ask questions and query and push back in areas where I just wasn't willing to go because I didn't want to talk myself out of this great business opportunity. I'm sorry. I just want to stop you on that point because that is a form of due diligence no matter what. What would those questions been? Yeah. So one question I wish I had asked was define a dismal failure and a great success 90 days, one year, and three years after I take over or join the team. 
Okay. I wish I would have asked that. Another question is, what's your philosophy about leading and managing people? How do you identify great people? How do you convince them to join your team? And how do you get the most out of them? That was where the major cultural difference was. I've always been a big fan of Steve Jobs. You know, a lot of people hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire smart people and ask them to tell us what to do. And that style wasn't the way this company had historically operated. It was more command and control. You know, we've got an agenda here and either you're going to fit into it or we'll find somebody else to fit into it. I was a fish out of water in that environment. I don't know how to work that way. So, yeah, I mean, culture change is just, that's a huge, huge issue in itself. But to take a command and control environment and turn it into one which empowers the individuals to come forward and take risks and be wrong. It sounds easy, but it probably in practice would not be easy to do. It isn't. And I always come off when I hear myself talk about this after doing a podcast, you know, I always feel like I come off as negated. There are very successful command and control leaders and organizations in the world. And I don't mean to belittle the mindset. It's just not my way. I prefer to empower people to do the right thing and manage to results, not methods. And so anyway, that was the biggest business failure for sure. And it put my family at risk. It was a very difficult mistake to recover from. And quite frankly, I've spent 15 years attempting to recover from it emotionally and and economically. And that's part of my journey to be at peace is, you know, when you feel like you make a mistake that lets a lot of people down, including the owner of this business who, you know, I really liked and respected and trusted, you know, I let her down. I wasn't the person she wanted me to be. And had I done a better job that either I wouldn't have accepted the opportunity in the first place, or I would have gone in eyes wide open and been better prepared to succeed in that environment. And so, you know, that's where a lot of the soul searching comes from. I hear you on that. And the lesson that I'm taking from that and hearing from that is that of just asking far more questions and both of the business, the opportunity and of the person being yourself. Yeah. And when you're in a deal making environment, as I know a lot of your listeners are, mergers and acquisitions, key executive hires, et cetera, you know, there is this sort of sheen of privacy and secrecy. We don't want to let everybody know that we're in play because then the best people will leave. And so there is this sort of weird thing where the most important questions you can't ask of the people who are going to give you the answers you need, or they feel like they can't answer those questions honestly because they're going to get fired if they don't give you the right answer. And so so again, this is a hindsight being 2020 lesson is the things that scare you most are the things you should find a way to get good answers to. Yeah, it reminds me of a book. It's a book on marketing, but it's called Trust Me, I'm Lying. And <laughs> it's like that title is so applicable to the world of finance and the world of M&A and all that. And one of our past guests, a gentleman named Brent Holiday, his basically a slogan of his is buyers are liars. And that's in his world of helping sell businesses. It's just, it's a very hard thing to actually get the truth. And yeah, it leads to the need to really be able to ask the kind of questions in in different ways. 
Yeah, and I'm a big fan of the studies that demonstrate just how inaccurate our recollection of things that just happened an hour ago really are, in that what we portray as factual is really not at all rooted in reality. We put a spin on our own story right from the start, sometimes in the way we consume it. Again, it's impossible, in my opinion, to ask too many questions, except that I'm also not a big fan of ready, aim, 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 aim. And so, you know, the last thing I'll tell you is, yes, this was the worst professional failure of my career. On the other hand, it led me to discover EOS, and I have loved every minute of my business life ever since. And I wouldn't be here without having made that terrible mistake. And so sometimes you just have to quit asking questions and pull the trigger and know that if you make a mistake, you're going to learn from it and keep moving forward one step at a time. And that's been true of my life. And the more often that happens, the less afraid of those mistakes you are, because sometimes the things you get the most credit for having great judgment about actually happened to you in the middle of a mistake. Yeah, it's so true. For me, there's been a lot of coming to peace with mistakes made, you know, both recent and late kind of thing. But when I sit back and just reflect on it, it's like, what business out there is not just a collection of mistake after mistake after mistake? <laughs> well, my boys play soccer to pretty good. My youngest boys are 15 and 12. They play soccer, football for your listeners everywhere but North America at a very high level. And they're down on themselves when they make a mistake or two or five or 23 in a game. And, you know, I'll play a Champions League final or a World Cup game. And I'll say, okay, that guy gets paid 27 million pounds a year to play for Manchester City. And he just made six mistakes in that game. If you think that life isn't full of mistakes you're going to make, you are setting yourself up for failure. And again, we that comes back to that being at peace thing. I mean, part of being at peace is learning to forgive yourself. How about bringing that, the world of being at peace and understanding mistakes and communicating them within a team in an organization. Have you seen that? And how can you get everybody on board with the fact that mistakes are made and that it's part of building a company? Yeah. So one of my favorite books is a book called Integrity by Dr. Henry Cloud. And I love the subtitle, which is The Courage to Face the Demands of Reality. That is how he defines the word integrity which is a completely different definition than the way most people assign value to that word. And so when one of my boys was struggling early in his childhood, we took him to a child psychologist and we asked this woman a question about how to break bad news to him because he struggles with anxiety and gets upset easily. And she said, it's really simple, Peyton. Tell the truth, use as few words as possible and shut up. And her point was, just listen and ask clarifying questions and elicit him talking. So I attempt to use the same approach as a leader when I'm leading. I fail regularly because I'm good at talking and I'm less good at listening. But that's a constant reminder in my brain. And sometimes when I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'm hearing my voice a little too much, I'll hear her in her voice say that. <laughs> I'll stop talking. And I'll turn the ears on and turn the mouth off. Yeah, ah, good points there. I want to change gears. I want to talk about EOS. And, you know, obviously a huge part of your life, 
Can you give us a high level? And let's dive into some of the mechanics of it because, yeah, it sounds very powerful. Yeah, I'll start high level and you take the conversation where you like. But, you know, what EOS is, is a simple set of concepts and tools that have been around for a thousand years, going to be around for a thousand more that helps an entrepreneur and his or her leadership team get more of what they want from their business. EOS stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And just like a computer has an operating system, so does a business. And that's all EOS is, very high level stuff. Hmm. It's funny because I think about an operating system for some companies and some that I've been in and some that I've led where it's like the blue screen of death. And you're like, clearly this software didn't work out. And so, you know, an example of failure, oh, okay, got to go back to the drawing board there. But when things operate in a formulaic manner, you avoid so much friction and can do stuff. So what are these concepts? And in fact, for those who are are watching my video, you know, you've got a lot of the diagrams behind you right now. Take us further. Yeah. So the system was built by a lifelong entrepreneur for other entrepreneurial leaders because he recognized many, many years ago that leading an entrepreneurial company where you might be sweeping the shop floor one minute, hiring somebody the next minute, dealing with an angry customer the next minute, and leading and managing in a big corporation where you have the luxury of being mostly a full-time leader and manager are two different things. And so what he was able to deduce in working with entrepreneurial companies and leadership teams early on was that all entrepreneurs tend to struggle with 136 issues. And and all those 136 issues kind of fall into six areas or categories of the same kind of stuff. And we now call those the six key components of EOS and the EOS model. And that diagram over my right shoulder is the EOS model. And so we believe that to run a truly great company, you need to be strong in six things. The vision component. You need to have a crystal clear vision of where you're going and how you plan to get there and get everybody else 100% on the same page. You need to be strong at the people component. You need to define what a great person means to your unique organization and then be really good, unfailing really, at hiring and retaining great people. You need to be strong at the data component, meaning running your business on a handful of numbers that give you an absolute pulse on the business and help you make better, stronger, faster decisions, not drowning in data and being paralyzed by that data, which has become more and more common in today's world. Back in the day when I started in business, there was no data in most organizations. Everybody was flying at the seat of their pants. The fourth key component is issues. And that's not saying you can't run a truly great organization without issues. It's saying all organizations have issues and you need to be really good at recognizing them as they arise and then setting them up, knocking them down and making them go away forever. Process is the art and science of getting the most important things in the business done the right and best way every time, even when the owner, leaders, or managers aren't there to direct everybody. And I've just finished the next book in the Traction Library, Process with an Exclamation Point, to talk about that. And then the last key component is the traction component, the ability to bring a vision down to the ground and execute on it with real discipline and real accountability. And That's what EOS is, a set of tools and concepts that helps leadership teams get better at or stronger at all six of those things. 
there's a few that I want to weigh in and maybe I'll start with this process. I was leafing through traction and I'll be honest, it's on the list. And now having been spoken with you and then also having been a great recommendation, it's like, okay, it's top priority. But I'm leafing through and I come to a section in that book about process. And it even articulated one like, okay, here's what it needs to be. And the reason why it stuck with me was you read these books, these management books, and they all say, well, you need process and, you know, everybody's got to do it and you got to be able to walk away if you get, you know, hit by a bus, same old stuff. But then you lay it out and I saw like, this is all it needs to be, quit overthinking it. And so that was really helpful for me. And I also like there has been an instance with some of work we've done as a small organization, but put process in place and the amount of time invested in that followed by the amount of time recovered to apply to something else was actually remarkable. Albeit, I think I overkilled the process, like overdid it. Well, and that's the book. So Corey, you would think that the market for a book selling the power of process to entrepreneurs is quite small (laughs) because a lot of entrepreneurs, the whole first third of the book is about mindset. Because an entrepreneur and his or her leadership team members have been conditioned in the world to believe that you have to choose between freedom and process. Hey, I started an entrepreneurial company not to create a bunch of robots who aren't capable of thinking for themselves. That's a big corporation with bureaucracy. The Department of Motor Vehicles operates that way. I don't want to operate my entrepreneurial company that way. But the bottom line is... If you want to be free and if you want to be able to elevate yourself up into real strategic leadership and flexibility and adaptability and create amazing things in the world that nobody's even thought of yet, if you're still on the phone with an angry customer because somebody didn't do their job properly, you're not going to have the time to be free. And so what we're trying to do, my co-author Lisa Gonzalez is another EOS implementer out of Colorado. She's amazing. And What we tried to do is rally cry the entrepreneurial community and say, listen, there's a high level 2080 approach to documenting and simplifying your core processes and teaching everybody in the organization how to do the most important things the right and best way every time that is not going to create corporate bureaucracy. And it's going to free you up to live the life you wanted to live and run the business you thought you would be running when you started this damn thing. So please just do these high level basic things and then let the people who are a little process crazy in your organization take it to the next level on their own. But don't abdicate is what we're saying. And so ironically, I just gave my first talk about the process content to a room full of entrepreneurs a couple of weeks ago and Gino called me to ask how it went. And I said, it was great. They got a really positive response. I was a little nervous. He goes, wait a minute, run this back for me. You're telling me you gave a, a talk about just process to a room full of entrepreneurs and they liked it? <laughs> right on. Yeah. This is a common perception and it's just not right. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. You know, something that I've experienced in our own company and in my own head is that we're too small, we're boutique, we're niche. So you have to continually be, you know, adapting and flexing it. And one of the things and it's part of our vision and part of our core values is being a great partner to our clients. And in saying that, you look and you go, how can you put a process there? And so like, it's one of these obstacles I've been putting up for myself, but there's so many other ways that you could apply it. 
Well, and another little nugget of content from the book is that great entrepreneurs are, in fact, naturally process-oriented or process-oriented. What we do really well is when we succeed with something, we incorporate it into our daily behaviors without really even thinking about it. We sure as heck don't write it down or you know, put a manual in place. But sort of unwittingly, we're throwing out all the stuff that leads to pain and failure from our daily regimens. And we're repeating the stuff that leads to consistent success. When your organization grows beyond your own ability to do that naturally and adaptively, you can't allow 100 employees to naturally adapt the way they operate to the way you want your company to show up in the world. And so a lot of anxiety we entrepreneurs have about process is born out of that recollection of the freedom we had in the early days of our business to work things out for ourselves. But when you have a hundred different people doing that in your organization, that means you're creating hundreds, if not thousands of different experiences for your clients or your customers. And that is just dangerous. And so that's that point where you say, how do we take everything you've learned in the 10 or 15 years you've been experimenting with how to do this well and codify that for the masses of your business to follow, which will then free you up to keep tweaking and improving and reorchestrating those changes into the processes everybody else is following? It is a really surreal kind of conundrum that process causes in an entrepreneurial company. And that's why I'm so excited about this content, because I think you nailed it when you brought it up, Corey. And that is, we tend to overthink and or overcomplicate it. And if we just get some basic stuff done the right and best way every time, life is going to be a lot easier and better for all of us. Yeah, it's a great lesson I had from a former CEO, as you would say, progress over perfection. And I still stumble over that, but I have to remind myself of that. Yeah. Another interview we had, we interviewed a gentleman named Andrew Barnes, who's really pioneered the four-day work week. And he's a serial entrepreneur, runs a number of companies out of New Zealand. And I asked him about the four-day work week, if he had implemented the system in his companies. And he doubled down on that and said, yes. And not only that, we made it mandatory for only the senior management to take a four-day work week. And I was fascinated by it. And so I asked the next question. I said, well, what about those who are really ambitious and want to rise to the top? Aren't they going to be putting in five and six and seven day work weeks? And he said, maybe, but if they're really that good, shouldn't they be able to do it in four? Which then drove to the question of process. And managing to results, not methods. Yeah. 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 He said a huge piece there with companies moving into the four day work week. It's about how are you actually managing and measuring the results? And it's like he said, most companies have no idea. Yeah. And you need good and reliable data to do that. And you need courage to do that. You need trust to do that. It's hard. And unfortunately, when you create systems that require people to be at their desk or workstation from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you are unwittingly sending the message that being present is less important than being effective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's six components to the EOS system. We talked about process. What else? What's a big one for you? Yeah. So I always talk about people on interviews and podcasts because when we surveyed our clients 
about 10 years ago as to their largest frustrations, 82% of them ranked people as the number one frustration. And so people who own and run entrepreneurial companies are constantly frustrated with their partners, fellow leadership team members, employees, the vendor that didn't deliver on time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, when you strengthen the people component, we talk about two Jim Collins terms. We focus on making sure you have the right people in the right seats. And so right people share your organization's core values like grow or die, which we talked about earlier. People who are in the right seat are just independently really good at their jobs day in and day out. And we believe you've got to have both right people and right seats. And by separating those two concepts into two distinct ideas, it actually makes it easier for leaders and managers to assess their people. It's when you mush them together that you tend to mask the great salesperson who's a cultural train wreck or the great culture fit who's not changed with the times or the scale of your organization and is lagging behind his or her co-workers. And we believe you can and should address both of those issues by coaching people up and, if absolutely necessary, coaching them out and, and finding somebody who's both. Right. And how about finding talent? It seems to be the oddest thing from a pandemic where, where you know, this great resignation, all these things that you hear, but then you see some wild successes that have come from the pandemic. But when it comes to finding good people, good talent, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So first of all, you've got to have a clearly defined culture that your organization is able to deliver on. Can you give me an example of one? Not culturally cultural claims, but an actual set of cultural norms that you hold people accountable for exhibiting on a regular basis. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's a wave now in Silicon Valley to go away from the ping pong tables, you know, pizza parties, and towards a different approach to culture. And so what we believe is if you've got your core values on the wall behind the receptionist or sailboat mountain climbing posters on the wall, but you're not living and breathing those core values. And when somebody is obviously a poor culture fit in your organization, if you're not willing to confront that head on, and say to the top performer, hey, you're great at your job, but you're not perpetuating our culture. And if this doesn't stop, we're going to have to let you go. If you're not willing to live and breathe your culture and hold people accountable to sharing this sense of values throughout your organization, then it makes a mockery of the whole idea. It breeds cynicism and your best performers leave. The people who share your core values and are great at their job want to be treated better than the people who don't share your core values and aren't great at their job. And if they don't see you doing that, they're going to go work for the competition. And so your choice is lose your best people to the competition or lose your worst people to the competition. You choose. And so how do you document that? How do you communicate that? Yeah, more often than my clients would like to. The rule in my session room is if you're not sick of hearing yourselves talk about your core values with your direct reports, with others, in big company meetings. Every single week, you're not doing it often enough. And for the record, this is you know being vulnerable and humble here. 
it used to drive me crazy when I was the visionary for EOS Worldwide. We'd be talking about the quarterly event we have for all our implementers, and we'd get to this agenda item. You know, you got to give the core value speech this quarter, Peyton. Remember, you know, and I'd say, oh, man, I, man, we got a lot of other stuff on the agenda, Gino. Do I really have to do it every time? And he'd throw his hands up and say, man, you're worse than most of my clients. What's the matter with you? You know, so I know better, but we feel like we're repeating ourselves way more often than we need to. And, you know, repetition is the mother of learning. So we preach, repeat it often, and eventually everybody will either decide they don't fit and they want to go somewhere else, or it's important and they better pay attention and change the way they behave to match the cultural norms of the organization. Interesting. I've been in instances where... You know, there's a lot of kind of repetition and trying to hammer in the values or whatever this, but it did feel coerced. It felt compelled. Ingenuine. Yeah. So that was like, that's the, I guess, a difficult point there. How do you mix that? But it sounds like it's something worth pushing for. You know, Gino's favorite phrase about that is all that other stuff is great, but it's the icing on the cake. And when you serve people a bunch of icing and they don't get any cake, nobody likes that for long. And so the cake is the day-to-day behaviors. You know, when you sit your direct reports down for a quarterly conversation or a formal annual performance review, do you spend as much time on culture fit as you do whether you hit your numbers or not? And if you don't, the message you're sending is this is more important than this. You know, these are the choices we make as leaders every day. And when people are hard to find, Corey, which is it's harder to find people today than ever. But when people are harder to find, the temptation is to lower your standards. And unfortunately, lowering your standards exacerbates the problem because, again, your best people leave. And what we preach is create a culture where great performers who share the core values are held on a pedestal, celebrated, treated well, paid above market rates because they're producing above market returns for you, but don't tolerate mediocrity or worse. Because once you start tolerating mediocrity or worse, it doesn't matter how much you're paying the top performers, they're carrying the workload for these people that are causing problems for your organization and they resent it. You know, Tom Brady signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because He wanted to win another Super Bowl. He didn't sign with a team that he thought had no chance of getting to the playoffs. That's the way champions are. I want to win the championship every year. So let me sign up for a team that's going to behave like champions every single day. I wonder what his due diligence was like. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think there's probably numerous documentaries we can watch about that all of which make me hungry because that guy hasn't eaten a bite of sugar in like 800 years. So uh, <laughs> yeah, really discipline and consistency. Very impressive. Well, I was going to call you Mike, but you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's Peyton. That's how you're known. So I don't want to confuse you. I'm easily confused, Corey. Uh, with this, a few questions I want to ask. What do you read? What do you enjoy reading both for business or outside of that? Yeah. So I read a lot for pleasure. I was actually an English major in college and I like a good, well-written, proper novel. I also like sort of beach read novels, crime novels. So I like Harlan Coben and Elmore Leonard and John Samford and lots of page-turning mysteries for pleasure. For business, 
I read almost everything I can get my hands on. The last year I've been busy writing the process book and that has eaten into my time for creative endeavors. But right this minute, I'm reading Atomic Habits by James Clear for the second time. And I am humbled by the number of mistakes I'm making in terms of reinforcing negative habits and and not establishing positive habits. So that's part of the grow or die mission for me is I I try and at least once a quarter read a book I'm afraid to read. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like you crush through books. Yeah. Well, don't give me that much credit, but every night when I go to bed, that's kind of my pre-bedtime ritual. And sometimes it's two pages and I'm out. And sometimes it's a couple hours and I wish I had put it away earlier. So, Wow. Yeah. Hey, I'm also curious about having just finished your book process. What is your writing process? How did you come about that, especially with writing with another author? Yeah. So I learned this approach from Gino when we wrote Get a Grip together back in 2011. You know, map out what you're trying to say. And because Get a Grip is a business fable, I also did a pretty extensive set of character studies and situational drafts. And Gino and I got on the same page with kind of the arc of the book. And then the way it worked is we replicated that for the creation of process in that we would write the first section or chapter, share it with one another and exchange constructive and positive feedback, tweak it then send it out to test readers for their feedback and start writing the next section or chapter. And we just kept repeating that process until we got to the point where we had a a manuscript that was ready to rock and roll. And we have a great publisher in Ben Bella Publishing out of Dallas. And so when you have a great publisher, they establish a manuscript due date. And so I would urge anybody in your audience who's writing a book to establish a manuscript due date, whether you have a publisher or not, because if you don't have a date, it has to ship, you'll never finish it. But that's kind of our process and it worked well for Get a Grip and Lisa and I both thought it worked really well for process. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. And as we're just hitting the top of the hour here, any final thoughts for the audience? I know we've meandered through a number of different things, but any takeaways? That's a conversation with Peyton, Corey, as you're going to meander through a a number of different things. Yeah, I would say, number one, don't lose sight of your passion. The thing that robs me of joy is when I see a business owner who's built something amazing and is just not having fun anymore and has fallen out of love with his or her business and is staring at the business that exists today and thinks that it's got to be this way forever. And I've seen over and over and over again that If you can get the basic things in the business done consistently well by a great leadership team that fits your culture, you can be freed up to live the life you want to live and re-unlock the potential of your business. But it requires some behavior change, some mindset change, and some investment of time and energy. And so that's my big advice is just reignite the passion you had for the business in the early days and and know that it's possible to get help and and go find some help. Awesome. Well, Peyton, I really appreciate it. I'm glad we could connect. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. 
For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.